0: Hey everyone, Andrew Seeley here, and welcome to another episode of Air Check. We have a very special show for you this month. Many of you may remember that last year, the WVU Alumni Association honored Lieutenant Jim Downing, then the second oldest Pearl Harbor survivor, in a special ceremony in front of the mast of the USS West Virginia and on Mountaineer Field during the Veterans Day football game. Lt. Downing passed away at the age of 104 in February of this year, but in the few short days that he was with us in Morgantown, he made an unbelievable impact on our faculty and students. During that time, Lt. Downing sat down for a special interview with several veterans hosted by President and CEO of the WVU Alumni Association, Colonel Sean Frisbee. In this episode of Air Check, we listen in on that conversation and learn about the attacks on Pearl Harbor firsthand. Lieutenant Downing talks about his childhood, his first days in the military, his family, and of course, his account of December 7th, 1941. A short word of warning, some of Lieutenant Downing's stories do become graphic as he discusses the details of the attack and its aftermath. He finishes the interview by talking about the future of our nation and the importance of keeping America safe and strong. As we approach the 77th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, please enjoy our conversation with Lieutenant Jim Downing.
1: I grew up in a small town in uh, northeast Missouri. We had no paved roads, no electricity, uh, no running water. Uh, By today's standards, it was very primitive, but we never had that, so we didn't miss it. So um, there were practically no automobiles. My grandfather had the first Model T in our county, and he was not very popular because the roads were two-lane, most of the traffic was horses and buggies or wagons. And they'd see this thing made a lot of noise coming down. The dash was painted red, and it threatened them. So he had to stop and uh, turn off the engine and lead the horses past.
2: Oh, that's great.
1: So in a small town, people were used to uh, judging the speed of a horse, but they didn't know how to judge the speed of a car. So my grandfather knocked down two or three of his friends and stepped right in front of the last minute. The uh, fuel was so poor that you had to stop every few miles and clean the spark plugs because they'd it over in there. Wow. So automobile transportation was not very popular in those days. My father owned a um, country store, and uh, we had a loafers bench in there. Uh, We called it the Spit and Argue Club, (laughs) where there were professional loafers who'd come out and talk all day. So I got my early education, uh, going past them around from lap to lap, hearing their views on things. They pretty good philosophers in there.
2: I'll bet so. So did you work in the store?
1: Yes. uh, I felt I was deprived of my boyhood because I had to work uh, Saturdays and before and after school every week. Wow.
2: So... What made you join the Navy? How did you decide to join the Navy?
1: Well, like many others, I was economically driven. <laughs> that uh, There was no jobs. Before I went in the Navy, I'd worked three days of my life, for uh, two days for a dollar a day, 12-hour a day, and one got a raise to a dollar and a quarter. But I had a friend who had been in high school uh, a couple years before me, he joined the Navy, he was on a submarine, his take-home pay was $90 a month. My father was a bank president, his pay was $90 a month. So I thought uh, my friend Curtis was a capitalist, having got much money to take home. Every summer he'd show up on a brand new Harley.
2: <laughs> Is that right, on a brand new Harley, huh? And, so, um, so what year did you join the Navy?
1: Uh, 1932.
2: 1932. So we had gone through the depression, and did the did the depression impact your father's store? I mean, what was what was the experience in li- in living through that time period?
1: Uh not very much because um, most of the farmers uh, canned their own goods, had their own orchards and, and, and potatoes, and so forth. So they just needed soda, sugar. And things that they couldn't raise on the farm. Um, he, we bought the produce from the farmers. There's chickens and eggs, and even rabbits. <laughs> uh, bringing rabbits, I think got a dime a piece maybe for a rabbit. <laughs> and uh, I've never knowingly eaten any rabbits since then because is that right? <laughs> we'd put them in a barrel, undressed. And a sprinkle of salt on them to preserve them.
2: I'll be darned. So, you joined the Navy. Where where was your training at? Where did you go to basic training?
1: At uh, Great Lakes, Illinois, just north of Chicago.
2: And so, how did you get there?
1: I went. To the uh, recruiting station was at Hannibal, Missouri, about forty miles from where I lived. So my father took me down, and. Uh, the recruiter put me up overnight. Then took a train to St. Louis. Another train to Great Lakes.
2: So you you end up on the USS West Virginia. Tell us about the USS West Virginia. Was that was was that a a new ship? Was it um, considered to be a fantastic one? Tell us about your experience on the USS West Virginia.
1: Yes, the um, West Virginia was the last of the World War One battleships laid down. So. It was commissioned in 1926, so I went aboard when it was just six years old. Um, let's say 26 and 32, yeah, all And um, battleships were kind of cheap cheap in those days. It only cost 45 million to build, <laughs> and I used to brag about uh, my rich uncle, who provided me with a 45 million dollar home. I spent uh, ten years attached to it. Uh, the last two and a half, it was uh, sunk, but I still was attached to it.
2: Is that right? So, what was life like on a daily basis uh, on that on that ship? I mean, what was your what was your job on the ship, and and what was it like to uh, to be on there?
1: Um, I started out like all new recruits at twenty one dollars a month. And uh, I reminded a friend who said that he wanted to get on a battleship because they were so clean and shiny you could lay down on deck. And he said after I joined the Navy, I found out who kept them that way. (laughs) (laughs) So he wasn't quite that excited then. But um, I uh, majored in uh, 16-inch guns and my career was as a gunner's mate. I started firing the 16-inch guns when I was uh, 19 years old. And uh, I've been uh, impressed in talking to other people sometime about the tremendous responsibility that the service puts on just teenagers. I tell you, you grew up in a hurry. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the first time I pulled the trigger on that thing. We had them shooting at a target one mile away, and it used a regular gun sight. So when I pulled the trigger, there was fire and smoke and noise and paint ships dislodged. I thought I'd blown the ship up. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't see anything. When the smoke cleared away, I could see two holes through the target. So that encouraged me to go ahead then.
2: And so then you, then you started to really enjoy that part.
1: Yes. Then later, I became the ship's postmaster, and uh, the greatest uh, uh, part of that was that whenever we were a couple hundred miles from land, we went in to take the mail and bring the mail back. So these were the first plane I flew. It was an SOC three. It had canvas wings, and uh, went off the catapult, compressed air cylinder. From sixty, from zero to sixty miles an hour, in uh, sixty feet. Wow! With and, canvas um, wings. Yeah, yeah. But they would, of course, rev up to full speed, release the catalog. So while the plane was still locked on the catapult, speed by, it vibrated three inches every way in that. But um, it was a one-way trip coming back. You know, I had to land in the water, and uh, sometimes it's kind of rough. And when the pilot would make a commitment, there was no reversing, so we often broke the wing floats off when they come down in the water.
2: I will bet you were a popular person being the postmaster. Everybody looking for letters from home, right?
1: Yeah, in those days, no email or um, uh, fund transfers and. Um, I'd say about uh, nearly half of the crew was married, wrote to their wives every day, paid days twice a month, and sent their money home with the handwritten money orders. So that was a big job, to write those money orders out every payday.
2: So before we, before we get uh, to the point where we're talking about um, the actual attack on the USS West Virginia, I've got a, a question I want to ask you. I've been eager to ask you this. So in 104 years, you've seen a tremendous amount of technology development and all of us in one way or another are involved uh, with the United States Air Force and developing technologies, the latest airplanes, the latest missiles, um, computers, uh, space uh, products. What do you think has been the biggest technological change you've seen, perhaps the most exciting one in your 104 years?
1: Well, I've got uh, one that's scientific and uh, the other is personal. <laughs> um, I understand that during every war that science advances by 100 years. And so the the greatest discovery uh, in World War Two was the use of uh, atomic energy and explosives. And then the next was uh, radar. And um, So as I summarize the importance of each of these, why I think uh, GPS is the greatest. Uh, It's remarkable, not only in the U.S., but all over the world, uh, that you never have to ask directions. My uh, family and I, my father took us on a trip from Missouri to Florida. Back in uh, the, uh, when I was a couple years old, and uh, it took a week and a half. There were no paved roads, and um, no road maps, no highways. So my dad got an atlas of each state that showed the counties, and he'd draw a line between county seats, and then ask somebody, how do you get here? Then find your way to the next county seat. The most frustrating thing about it was the maps did not show the rivers that didn't have bridges. There was a mark for the rivers. So we'd come to a river and uh, have to wait for the ferry boat. (laughs) And uh, most of them were uh, horse pulled, a horse on each side, and pull a ferry up and down.
2: So getting back to the USS West Virginia, I understand that there was a nickname for that ship what well, what was that that nickname? well, they
1: call it Weevee for short Weevee? Weevee, yeah and
2: and how did it get that name
1: well they, I think they just got tired of pronouncing West Virginia, so that <laughs> made it easy just just abbreviate it. <laughs> it was spelled w e e v e e e that's funny
2: that's almost as long as just saying West Virginia yeah <laughs> so tell us tell us about your experience on that day um You had said yesterday uh, that you were not actually on the ship uh, when the attack began, Uh, and once it began, you actually went to the ship to help your shipmates. Could you tell us that story?
1: Yes. um, It's been estimated there were 86,000 military personnel stationed on Oahu, Oahu on December 7th. And, of course, they couldn't be accommodated ashore. So the only people who could stay ashore overnight were married people. I'd been married for five months, so I was at home just uh, adjacent to the the, uh, base. So uh, reading breakfast, heard these explosions, saw the smoke, and turned on the radio. And the uh, owner of the station was the, um, um, I don't know what he called, MC that morning. He said, uh, "We have been informed by Army and intelligence that the island of Oahu is under enemy is under enemy attack." He said, "The enemy has not been identified. Stay tuned." So, a few minutes later, he came on and said, "The enemy has been identified as Japan." So. Uh, we were already in our uniforms. One of the men had a car, so we rushed down to the harbor. There were 164 military ships in port, the most it had ever been that morning, and uh, there wasn't room to tie up, so they were tied up in tandem. So the battleship Tennessee was tied up to a uh, Ford Island, and we were tied up to her outboard. So. Um, I got down to the ship as quick as possible, and the only way to get on my, my ship was to cross over the Tennessee. But uh, we were already sinking, and there was a little gap between the ships. But I had trained out a gun barrel 10 feet long and slid down the barrel to get on my ship. Now, we'd lost all electric power when um, we were hit by uh, nine aerial torpedoes. The Japanese uh, dropped 40 aerial torpedoes. We took nine of them, and then the Utah ahead of us took another nine. So um, it was predicted in damage control exercises that uh, eight torpedoes could sink a ship, and it did. Japanese were very smart. They put the first uh, torpedoes down low Then when the ship uh, listed, the uh, portion above the armor plate was exposed. So the next torpedoes were shallow, and they run right past the armor plate and uh, exploded. One hole in um, our ship uh, was 140 feet long after they'd been hit. But um, everything above the waterline was on fire when I got aboard, Every gun carries a, a certain number of rounds of live ammunition. So the flames were approaching this live ammunition. And I borrowed a fire hose from the Tennessee to try to beat the flame back so it wouldn't set off this uh, live ammunition and get a further explosion. And um, while I was doing that, I saw bodies lying around. Oh, some of them I thought I knew... Um, I wasn't sure about the others. But the thought occurred to me, their parents will never know how they spent their last hours. We had um, uh, metal ident- identification tags. I noticed that the person, the average civilian, I think, refers to them as dog tags. But that's not in my vocabulary. <laughs> and I hope I never refer to them as a dog tag. It's an identification identification tag with a fireproof lanyard. So all I had to do was go turn over the tag and clean the oil off of it. So I memorized the ones around me. Well, by noon, the fire was out. And um, I never realized what uh, the talk would be during combat and after it's over. But uh, the question to everybody is, did you see so-and-so? Did you see so in inquiring whether their friends survived or not? So one of my friends was badly burned. I went over to the hospital to see him, and here were these um, men in suspension, maybe 50, 65, their hair burned off, blind, badly burned, in a suspension. So I got a notebook, went down the line, and said, if you give me your parents' address and dictate a short paragraph, I'll see if they get it. So I spent the afternoon then. Now, there were no satellites, no radar. We did not know whether we expected a return attack. So the afternoon was spent setting up machine guns and uh, uh, barricading the beaches, getting ready for an invasion. But it didn't happen. The Japanese uh, only had a four hour window to meet their tankers and return, so they had to get it over with and leave. But these men that were so badly burned, many of them died that night. I was surprised that there wasn't a word of complaint or criticism. They just were cheerful and said, uh, to their parents, uh, don't worry about me. I'm going be okay. I'll be home for Christmas. A personal greeting or two. Um, those of us that our ships were sunk, and by the way, of the 164 ships in port, only 22 were damaged. The press always makes a lot of where there's the most smoke, you know, so we're universal. There were um, 30 destroyers in port. Only three were damaged. And uh, many of them shot every round of ammunition they had. We shot down uh, 29 planes. Another 74 were damaged so bad that when they got back to their carriers, they just pushed some of them right over in the ocean because they'd suffered that damage. So uh, our men gave a good account of themselves. As I analyze what I went through in that two and a half hours during the battle. First was surprised and then uh, I was scared. The first Japanese plane I saw was flying low and slow. When he got at the right position, the pilot banked and he cut loose his machine guns. And uh, he didn't bank far enough and then went over my head and dug a trench right behind. The war became pretty personal at that point. And then um, as I looked around and saw the, the ships that were on fire and sinking, I was angry at our leadership. As uh, much money and education as we were paying our intelligence, here I felt that let us down, both the military and uh, political. I know there's been some def- defense of... Uh, General Short and Admiral Kimmel, as though it wasn't their fault. But as far as I'm concerned, it was. During the uh, Korean War, I was the captain of the ship. And uh, as I looked back at that, there was never a waking hour but what I was concerned about the safety of the ship. I didn't have time to relax, just... uh, uh, in the Navy, if a captain allows his ship to touch any other object why well, he gets court-martialed. <laughs> so you want to keep plenty of water underneath and uh, all around. So I felt that these two, um, the general and admiral, they should have been set up late at night now, so there's an impossible way that something's going to happen. So I hold them accountable for what happened that, that morning. But uh, just one more thought, that um, we got uh, a mattress and pillow from a supply department, and uh, the only place we could find a lie down was a, there was a sports arena that just opened up, um, named after an admiral the block uh, arena. So a lot of breachers. So several hundred of us just went over and put our mattress and pillow down, and somehow the word got around to all the mosquitoes on the island. <laughs> they were out there. So we renamed it the uh, mosquito bowl. <laughs> and the next night looked for something that had screens on it.
2: What was the hardest thing you saw that day?
1: Um there were um quite a few of sailors. They were blown off their ship. Um the battleship Arizona was on fire no, they, the bombs penetrated, and she burned with her own ammunition and other things And there. Over 1,100 were killed on the Arizona that morning. The uh, fire was so hot that the oil on the surface was blazing, you know, two or three feet high. So these guys had blown off the ship. When they come up, they had a... a thin film of oil on them, and they were like human torches, so to see these guys break through the water and then burn to death, as torches, that was the hardest thing to be. Now later, the Navy learned to t- tell everybody, if you're ever submerged where there's a fire on the surface, don't surface without putting a hand up and moving away, so you can, but they didn't know how to do that in those days, so they just burned to death wow so i'm going
2: to open this up to uh you guys uh asking some questions uh who would like to ask the first question sir fred williams it's an honor to to be with you today thanks for taking time to to share your your life with us um as i listen i have to ask about your family i mean you said you just gotten married maybe six months when this happened can you tell us a little bit about what what happened with your life and your family um I'm real curious.
1: I have, um, didn't do the first of it. The,
2: um, you, you, you talked about your family and what happened with your family after that? You've only been married for about five months. And um, tell us a little bit more about your family after that.
1: Yes, well, um, they didn't have security very well organized. So my wife uh, came down the next morning I was covered with oil and hadn't shaved and um, didn't have a uniform that matched, so um, she said I never looked better to her. But since um, Oahu uh, has to have about everything shipped in to have, they evacuated all people that were not a part of the war effort, so she had to go home on Christmas Day. Um. She went back to her parents in Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, I was on the front page for several days. It, it said uh, uh, she gave blood, and her husband uh, fought in the fires, so they used her to raise war bonds, <laughs> sell war bonds. In there. So we were separated for a year and a half then before getting resumed. So when, I count our 68 years of marriage, well, I include that year and a half. Maybe I should subtract that from it. 68 years. Wow. That's awesome.
2: That's great. Congratulations. Talk to us slow, slow and loud,
0: Mike. Hey, Jim, Mike Schmidt. Um, it, it truly is an honor to me today, and, and uh, listening to your stories has been, has been fantastic for me, and I'm, I'm sure the, the rest of us as well. Um, I was really curious at the end of World War II, what was life like for you right after the war and where and where where were you headed at that point?
1: Well again it's kind of personal that uh we were forced to wear our uniforms twenty four hours a day, so once the war was over, while that ban was lifted. However, most of the clothing factories had converted to uniforms. So they didn't have that many civilian clothes. So the ban was extended on wearing civilian clothes for another year. (laughs) That was was kind of tough. But uh, at the end of the war, I was teaching uh, naval weapons in Washington, D.C. to uh, people going on new ships, and um, I, I was in charge of the night shift. So, I heard over the radio that uh, the Japanese had surrendered. So, I made the mistake at the break of, of announcing that the war was over. Then I tried to get the students back in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> was, that wasn't easy. Here, why study about something they weren't going to use.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, sir Stuart Brown. I- I just have a question. You were uh, on the USS West Virginia, obviously, during the attack, but then you stayed on the ship after it was raised again. Did the ship have any peculiarities or anything that uh, was sort of lasting after they raised it back up from from uh, being uh, underneath the water?
1: Yes, I've got a, a couple of unpleasant memories. But uh, it took some time. To weld concrete patches over the holes. Then, when they did that, they had to pump it out. And uh, that took several months to do that. So, I was anxious to you know uh, what the post office looked like. It was down below the water line. So, as they pumped it out, I'd go over there and uh, see for we down the level where I could find the office. So I was there one day with a flashlight and uh, I um, stepped on something and I slipped and fell on my back in there. I had a flashlight. When I got up and looked, I'd stepped on a, the uh, leg of a body and uh, so the skin came right off the bone. Wow. So um, that was a sad experience. But the saddest experience, we had uh, two men that uh, were in a watertight compartment, and the water was so heavy they couldn't get out. So when we were able to open up that compartment, we found out they had kept a a diary, a calendar, marking off the days. So they had lived till they'd run out of oxygen uh, just two days before Christmas. So they were trapped in that compartment for, uh, what, more than two weeks. Wow. Hmm. Sir Mike Brown.
2: How old are you, sir?
1: I had uh, 24 years active duty.
2: Okay. How old are you today?
1: Uh, Excuse me? How old are you
2: today? 104. 104. How do you have this memory? It's amazing to recollect this memory from 60 years ago.
1: Well, I do have a good memory, although um, I remember what I want to forget, and I forget what I want to remember. (laughs) (laughs) But... uh...
2: So one of the big events for military officers is obviously their day of commissioning. Can you tell us about how you were commissioned in the in the Navy? Could you uh, could you tell us, Lieutenant Downing, how you were commissioned? It's a that, that's a big day for all officers getting commissioned. Could you tell us that story?
1: Yes, uh, I enlisted in the, in the service, mm-hmm. and um, at the time of the attack, I was a uh, first class petty officer in the Navy, which is uh, uh, pretty close to a top sergeant in the other services. And I was teaching uh, naval weapons at a uh, Navy school in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. We had about five departments, and uh, the other heads of the department were uh, reserve officers. And uh, I was out of the fleet. Uh, I was department head. And, of course, just due to my experience, knew more than all these other officers put together. (laughs) So the officer in charge of the school was also a reserve officer. And one day he called me in and said, uh, Do you want to be an ensign or a warrant officer? And I said, I don't recall saying I want to be the one. He said, How old are you? I told him. He said, That'll be ensign report to a certain uh, place to take an exam, another for an interview. So I was inter- interviewed by a, a Navy force dropper, equivalent of a colonel, in the Air Force. And um, the interview wasn't very long. I mean, the only question I remember was, he said, who do you think works the hardest, officers or enlisted?
0: <laughs>
1: and um I figured the the, the answer he wanted to know, so I gave the right answer to that. So within a, a few days, I got a letter from the headquarters of Washington just promoting me on the spot. So um, When um, I became the captain of the ship then, I had to um, get a security clearance. Uh, and it was pretty easy. They just said... Uh, Due to your long years of loyal service, why the uh, test is, the examination for clearance is waived. So I got my top secret clearance the same way.
2: So, Lieutenant Downing, uh, something that you say really intrigues me, and, and that is that the greatest peace you've ever had was actually during the attack, and... That just doesn't seem like it's possible. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yes. uh, (laughs) um, When I came in the Navy, I'd been brought up in a a country church. And um, when you were junior high, you were expected to go to a revival meeting and uh, make a decision, join the church, and be baptized. I'd gone through all of that. But uh, life was pretty rough aboard ship as a recruit, But um, I met uh, five Christian guys on there, and um, they had a resource that I didn't have. They were happy. So I wanted the life that they had, so I became a Christian. I was a Christian uh, uh, from 1935. That was six years later. Between the first and um, second wave, there was a gasoline tanker, the Neosho decided to shift from one side of the harbor to the other. And uh, the Japanese um, had to send in 45 fighters. And they saw this tanker moving, and they thought, well, we could blow it up. Why? Uh, we could accomplish more than was accomplished with everything else. It wasn't full, but there was enough in it to make a huge explosion. So they came in, like, these fighters like swarms of bees attacking with their light bombs and uh, machine guns but they didn't penetrate the hall but I was pretty sure every time they made an attack they would and so as I would see them coming in to make an attack I just looked up and said uh, Lord I'll see you in a minute (laughs) So that was the anticipation I had that I was going to go. I was almost disappointed when it was over. <laughs> but um, I had the um, that deepest peace I'd ever had, and I think that was anticipation that I was going to change universes there just any time.
2: So obviously your Christian faith has played a very large role in your life. Uh during the attack, obviously, uh, afterwards, and even after, you retired from the Navy. And mm-hmm. you were uh, one of the leaders in an organization, I understand, called the Navigators. Right. Could you tell us about the Navigators?
1: Yes, it started with uh, those five men aboard the battleship West Virginia. And I was number six in the ladies. Now, today, we're in uh, over 100 countries of the world. And uh, on most of the campuses, we've had people here on West Virginia, but we don't have anybody right now. So um, our mission is to uh, take Christians, either new Christians or old Christians, lead them to maturity to where they can repeat the process. So we feel that's the way the world will be reached is by everybody multiplying. So that's what we emphasize. And uh, um, most of the countries we're in, we're on the campuses. We're primarily a a university um, group. Uh, uh, We've got in Atlanta, Georgia, we have 100 staff down there trying to reach every segment of the city. That's fantastic.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you gentlemen have any other questions for Lieutenant Downing? So... To, to wrap this up, uh, Lieutenant Downing, do you have any thoughts or advice for us? You know, we're all, we're all around 50 years old. Uh, some of us are retired from the military and second career. Some are still active duty. What advice do you have for us?
1: Well, I was impressed by a, a speech that Ronald Reagan gave in the 1980s. And the speech was uh, called Peace Through Strength. And uh, he coined a phrase that I tried to get uh, every American I talked to to memorize. Three words. And that phrase was, weakness invites aggression. Pearl Harbor survivors have a motto, uh, remember Pearl Harbor, Keep America alert. And I added that, and strong, alert and strong. I saw a no-parking sign the other day that said, uh, don't even think about parking here. And so I've adopted that phrase. I talked to some ROTC students last night. I tell them the same thing, that... um, you're the uh, leaders of tomorrow, you're the voters, you're the taxpayers, you're the legislators. Keep America so strong in cyberspace, in the skies, on the ground, on the sea, and under the sea, so strong that no aggressor will even think about attacking Uh The military is expensive. But um, uh, lack of freedom is more expensive.
2: Well, thank you very much, Lieutenant Downing. This has really been a true honor and privilege to have you here at West Virginia Mm -hmm. University. Uh, We love having you here in the Mm -hmm. Alumni Center, and we look forward to spending the rest of the day with you and going and winning a football game.
1: Yes, well, it's been a pleasure and an honor to be with you, so thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: Hey guys, it's Andrew again, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen to Air Check. If you enjoyed our conversation with Lieutenant Downing, make sure you stay up to date as we release new episodes in our monthly newsletter and on the WVU alumni app available for Apple and Android users. And as always, you can head to our website, alumni.wvu.edu, for more information. Thanks for listening.